we're going to be reading from Revelation chapter 3, which will be on the screen. But if you've got a Bible as well, that would be really helpful too. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strength from what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my Lord, of my God. Remember therefore what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me, dressed in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will, will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Can I ask you a question? Um, when was the last time you got lost? Not trying to be rude, um, but when was the last time you got lost? Um, was it if you are a year seven person? Was it when you just uh, set foot into your new school? Perhaps you got lost on the way to school, but you've been there for a week or so, a full week, and perhaps you've got lost. Perhaps you'll get lost as you go to university. I hope you won't, Lydia. I hope you won't, Reuben. But uh, when was the last time you got lost? Let me be honest with you. It was this year for us as a family. I was leading my intrepid family on a walk on Saturday just outside of Shear, up by Gomeshaw in Surrey. We went up a hill. I thought I knew the way. We took a wrong turn and I had to ask for help. The one thing that most, if not all men have in common is that we hate asking for help. And the funny thing is, perhaps it's harder to get lost in the days of uh, Google Maps and GPS, but you can still get lost. You can get lost in the book of Revelation too. Revelation, perhaps, unlike any other book of the Bible, it's easier to get lost in the book of Revelation than, than anywhere else. There are verses that are very confusing. There are chapters that uh, introduce us to new characters and themes. And it's very easy if all you're concerned about is focusing in on the micro. If you focus on every word and every detail, you can get lost. You can get lost in the symbols and the imagery. You can get lost and it won't be too long before you're like Hansel and Gretel. Do you remember them? They went into the woods and they got lost. They got lost as they couldn't see the forest for the trees and they couldn't find their way home. But if you stand back, if you stand back and zoom out in Google Maps, or if you stand back and stand on a vantage point, or if you ask the right person, then it's possible to see from the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ how the whole book fits together. In one way, without being simplistic, the message of the book of Revelation is that God wins. God always wins. And that's what we're going to see from the next two chapters of Revelation. Chapter two and chapter three, we're going to put together because it's about seven letters. Seven letters that Jesus writes to seven churches. We're going to look at number five. We're going to put them together and see that there is a key formula. Without being formulaic, there is a, a similarity to the seven letters. So over the next two weeks, we're going to be looking at two letters Number five and number six, Sardis and Philadelphia. But I want to show you the key. It's on the screen now. Each of the seven letters have these uh, 
these common steps, the letters were written to seven churches from John, who was incarcerated. He's in prison off the coast of Turkey in Patmos. And these seven churches are just grouped together in modern day Turkey. And as Jesus says to John through an angel, Revelation chapter one, verse one, write to these seven churches, here's where they are. I say are, not were, because these places are not in Bible land. They're not mystical. They're not made up or creative. It's not fictional. This is history. This is historical. And as John wrote these letters under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, these are the common threads we see in each letter. There's always a, an introduction. Jesus says, write to the church at. That's common. You can see that seven times. And then there's a sentence that goes back to chapter one and Jesus is described. So, so John goes back and almost cuts and pastes an element of the description and revelation of Jesus we saw last week from chapter one. He writes that to each church and then there's an assessment. Here's what's been going well. Here's what's been going badly. And then there's a warning. This is what you need to do. You need to listen. You need to change. You need to stop. You need to continue. And then there's a wonderful promise. But as I've looked at these letters, it's not as if only one promise is written to one letter. All the warnings, it's my conviction, are written to all the churches. All the blessings are written to all the churches. And all the churches in Turkey and all the churches throughout history and therefore to every Christian, we need to hear the warning to the church at Sardis that we look at this morning. I mean, these churches uh, receive these letters and they're like smelling salts. They're direct, they're personal, they're pointed from the pen of John and from the lips of Jesus. All the promises to them are ours, all the warnings to them are ours and to every church throughout the age. Because if you remember from the introduction last week, Jesus wants to warn the churches. He wants to say there is a persecution that's coming the like of which you've never seen. And the only way you will overcome, the only way you will persevere in the first, second, third century is if you see Jesus, as if you see Jesus as the cosmic king, the Lord of history. Do you remember last week? This depiction and description of Jesus, his hair is white like wool. That means he's wise, he knows all things, his eyes are fiery. There's nothing that Jesus cannot see. Those are scary words. Out of his mouth comes a sharp, double-edged sword. The words that Jesus speaks, they don't bounce off the surface like you skim off the water at the seaside. They pierce heart and bone and marrow. And his voice, there's nothing like his voice, the voice of King Jesus. It's like the sound of many waters. It's a depiction of power and glory. Jesus, this Jesus, is in complete control of 2020. He's in control of every century of history. And that's what we need to see today. And that's what the church at Sardis needed to hear in the first century. If you want Jesus to get bigger and bigger in your mind's eye and in your heart, in your affections, then you need to hear the challenge of this letter. And here's the first challenge that the church at Sardis needed to hear. They needed to hear that repentance is the way. Repentance is the way. 
Now, as I said to you, the church in Sardis, they're not uh, far away in Bible land. It's not made up like J.K. Rowling creates a world or Tolkien or Lewis. These are real people. This is a real fortified town. Here's a picture of it. 600 years before the gospel reached Turkey, if you can imagine top left-hand corner of your screen, Sardis was a, a walled city. It was impregnable. It was glorious. You can go and see today the, the temple that still exists at Sardis, this two-story building. This is not built by small imagine, imaginative people. This was built by skilled laborers who had a great view and a great vantage point. 600 years before the gospel reached Turkey, Sardis was an impregnable city. They were confident. They were arrogant. Many people tried to come in and overthrow them, but no one succeeded. No one succeeded. The attackers would come and go, and so there was an arrogance in their spirit. But then there was a day in the 6th century, in the time of King Croesus, where a Persian, a Persian military official wanted to storm Sardis. He wanted to create a surprise attack. And because no one was expecting it, he sent some warriors and they, they climbed a steep, a vertical cliff. They uh, got over the ramparts and they made their way into the city and caught the whole city by surprise. And the city, after the doors were open, was overthrown, thrown into chaos. And in 546 BC, Sirius, the Persian emperor, came into Sardis, ruling and reigning in an event that no one, no Sardisian ever thought would be possible. They were arrogant. They were proud about their superiority, about their position, about their walled uh, enclosure, their walled city. Their lesson had not been learned. They were arrogant. They were proud. And using that historic imagery, Jesus, through the pen of John, writes now to the church to this vibrant church that were growing, that were busy. They were leaning back on their reputation, just as the non-Christian Sardis had six centuries before, saying, you need to wake up. Look at verses two and three. To every one of the churches of the seven letters that are sent out by Jesus, there are words of challenge and warning. This is what he says to Sardis, verse two and three. He says, wake up. They were confident then, you are confident now in your own standing. Wake up. It's not all bad, says Jesus. You need to strengthen what remains, verse 2 into verse 3. You need to remember the gospel. You've forgotten it. You've got spiritual amnesia. You've forgotten your first love. You need to obey what I've said in my word, and you need to turn back to me because repentance is the way. Now, this is a prophetic book. It's an apocalyptic book. It tells us about the end of the world. It tells us about a reality, as we thought last week, where there's a curtain that Jesus can step into our world in a moment, in an instant. He doesn't live far away. He's in the heavens. But there's a reality that God can step into history right now if he so choose. But this is a prophetic book. Chapter 1, verse 3 tells us that. And it says it at the end of the book as well. In other words, when there's a prophetic word in the Bible, you don't see it much in the New Testament. But when prophecy is said in the Bible, we see it's about the future. It's about the far away. It's about what will be. And that's true. But more often than not, prophecy in the Bible is, 
It's a covenant charge. It's God sending his prophet to his people to say, you've forgotten me. You've turned away from me. Come back to the covenant. You said you would follow me with your heart and mind and soul and strength. But now there is a new lover like the book of Hosea in the Old Testament. You've made promise to me like the book of Jeremiah and Isaiah and Hosea and Amos. But you've turned away from me. And that's really the sentiment of these letters. It's, it's God's covenant charge against his covenant people. It's a, it's a lawsuit. It's legal language. But Jesus again and again says to his churches, this is what I have against you. You've drifted. Look at verse three. Remember, therefore, what you've received. Remember how you first came to me. Remember the promise you made to love and follow me. Remember the gospel. You've turned away. You've got all this activity, but you have forgotten me. We spent two weeks on the British Riviera, the south coast, during the summer, the first and last week of August. We missed the hot spatch, spatch, patch in the middle. I uh, had the privilege of Joe and the kids at a beach hut that belonged to a, a friend of ours. And uh, there's uh, nothing they like more than pumping up this huge yellow and black inflatable boat. And then it goes out on a maiden voyage out to sea. Much to my annoyance, being a lazy parent, I like to sit down and have a cup of coffee looking out at the beauty, perhaps make a sandcastle, perhaps not. But time and again, the boys would go into the water and then they would drift. They would move from the safety of the narrow shores and the tide would take them towards Bournemouth. It wasn't that far, 40, 50 metres, but they would drift. So I had two choices. Would I let them go and enjoy a peaceful day at the seaside? Or would I get up and warn them? I did it a few times. I went up from the slumber of my beach lounger and I walked to the seaside and I said, come back, you've drifted. Come back to safety. Come back to where I can see you and where you're secure. Jesus says, the heart of a Christian and the call to the church of Sardis and to every church is to, is to check your spiritual fuel gauge to check if you are secure in your own standing, to come back to the basics because repentance is a way of life to the Christian, to check your past week, to check if you've neglected God, to check how you are with him, to check if you are resting on your spiritual laurels, to see if you've neglected him, to see if you've sinned against him, and we have. And so a Christian is not someone who repents once a week, all of life is repentance of our wrong deeds and of our good deeds as well. That's the challenge to the church at Sardis, to say you've drifted like a, like a boat on the sea. You've drifted and you've forgotten your first love. Your inner reality, your inner world has been neglected and you're all about activity and working, but you've forgotten me. So all of life is repentance. Repentance is the way, says Jesus, to the church of Sardis and to all the churches throughout history. But that really just tees up the main point, the main challenge to the church at Sardis, which is to maintain your first love. Maintain your first love. That, those words are used in uh, chapter 
uh, 1 to describe the church at Ephesus. But look at verse 1 of our passage of chapter 3. These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Jesus says, I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I've not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Now, what's Jesus teaching us here? He doesn't pull his punches. He's a light smelling salts, as I said to you. But Jesus is direct and necessarily so. There are indications in other letters that the churches to whom Jesus writes to have gone astray. They've neglected Jesus's teaching and they're following false teaching. But what's interesting, there's no indication that Sardis has done that. They are faithful. They are following the teaching of Jesus. But in all probability, they've moved away from their first love. They're an active church. They're an alive church. They're a busy church. They're a diligent church. But look at what Jesus says. He who cannot be fooled, he who has eyes like fire says, I know your deeds. You might look to the outside. You might look to everyone else as if you're okay. But you need to wake up. I see through the facade. I see beneath the mask. I can see right into your heart, says Jesus, and you need to wake up. There's a loss of inner reality. You're not caring for your relationship with me. You might be busy caring for other people, but you've left me long ago. You know, it's possible to be really busy for Jesus, like the church at Sardis, to have your diary full of activity, to be caring for lots of people, to be engaged with lots of ministry, to have a full diary, even in COVID time. But ultimately, you're like a car tire or a bike tire. You've gone spiritually flat. Now, sometimes as a pastor, you talk about things you've got no experience of and you do your best. But this is something I know very truly. It was 15 years ago when Joe and I were busily involved in youth work. It took a lot of our time and a lot of our affections and all of our energy. A couple of children had come along and our lives were quite full. And so what happened was with all the busyness of life and still being engaged in ministry to teenagers, I neglected my inner world and I started to fake it as a Christian. It all came to a head one September, about 15 years ago, where I stood in front of young people and lied. I said the most important thing was Jesus, but he wasn't to me. I said the most important thing was making a priority of spending time with Jesus, and yet I wasn't. Joe and I had a heart to heart. We went to see the leader of the group and said, we're weary, we're worn out. I didn't use these words, but I'd neglected my first love. And Jesus showed himself in a fresh way to me through a time of rest, through the book of Hosea, of all the books of the Bible, through reading some good Christian material, through praying together with, with my wife, Jo. We needed to be restored because we were just like Sardis. We were like a tire that's gone flat. We were like a, a tree that looks fine on the outside, but in its heart, there was decay. And sooner or later, the pressure told and we couldn't fake it anymore. The mask slipped and the inner reality, the inner turmoil was revealed. 
Look at what Jesus says. Jesus says, you can't fool me. Verse two, you're dead. You need to wake up. And you might be thinking, well, which one is it? Is Jesus mixing his metaphors here? I think he is. I mean, you don't tell a dead person to wake up. They're dead. So they must be sleeping and they need to be made alive again. Jesus says you're spiritually asleep. He's not treating them as if they're not Christians. He's saying you are alive, but you're on the verge of being spiritually dead, spiritually asleep. So what does it look like? What does it mean to sleep spiritually? This message is written for everybody who hears it. Are you spiritually asleep? I mean, it's been hard, is it not? The last seven months of lockdown. Everything has got 20% more difficult, whether it's shopping, whether it's schooling, whether it's every single relationship you know, perhaps with a loved one that you want to be with, perhaps with a loved one whom you live with. Everything's got harder. And when the pressure comes, the cracks show. When the storm comes, as someone has said, you see where the holes in the boat are. And so how are you doing spiritually? It's one thing you can't fake with Jesus. You can trick everybody else. You can say the right words. You can say you've read the right book. You can say the right prayers, but there can be nothing of an inner reality. And to the church at Sardis, who were busy, and to me this week and to you this morning, Jesus says, wake up. Am I your first love? Have you neglected your inner world or is it your first priority? Not once a week on a Sunday morning, but are you habitually, do you have a passion to develop and grow your relationship with King Jesus? There's nothing more important. When you can be in your car and you can neglect the fuel gauge for just so long, then a warning light comes up and you can choose to neglect it again at your peril. But how are you doing spiritually? You can't help people if the spiritual tank is empty. So do you have a habit in your life of nurturing your relationship with the king of the cosmos, with the king of the universe? I mean, look at what Jesus says. As we look at this personally, but also as we look at it corporately as a church, every uh, corporate CEO, every church leader can recognize that there's a temptation to drift from your aims, like a middle-aged man falling asleep on the sofa at 9.30 last night. I'll leave you to fill in the blanks about who that might be. Every church can fall asleep and every organization can fall asleep every two to three years. And so we need to hear these words this morning that says, wake up, remember, obey, repent, strengthen what is good. Because Jesus says our chief aim, our goal is to be a lampstand. These churches are depicted, these seven churches that seven letters are written to are depicted as lampstand. Jesus is the lamp. We are the lampstand. And it's our goal, our chief aim to make much of Jesus. So as people look at us with all our feebles, with all our weaknesses and struggles, they see the beauty of King Jesus. But we're tempted to fall asleep individually and corporately as well. 
you know when you fall asleep i don't dream a lot but when i do when i'm sound asleep when i'm having rem what happens well what happens to me maybe you is this what is real is trumped by what is imaginary you might be dreaming about walking on smooth sands in the Caribbean, getting away from it, or you might be dreaming about security or, or academic prowess or sporting success. And in that moment, the reality of the real world is trumped by your wonderful dream that you're enjoying, or perhaps it's a, it's a horror and you're constricted by. But to fall asleep spiritually means that the reality of Jesus, his love, his affection, your security in him, his control over all history, the fact that he is good and loving and kind, that can be trumped by our fears and our anxieties. That's why we come to worship him. That's why we come together as a church, so that as we worship corporately, Jesus becomes more real to us. The reality that we can see by the eye of faith is made more real to us as we gather together. I mean, if you're worried, it's because Jesus's wisdom is not real to you. Your, your own is. If you're anxious, it's because Jesus's security and kingship and loving rule and reign is, is not real to you. It's not present as much as your own fears and concerns are. And Jesus says to each one of us, wake up if you're spiritually asleep. Wake up if you've left your Bible for a week or for two weeks. Wake up and come back to me. Listen to my voice and know me. I want a relationship with you. You've made a promise to love me and I will always love you. Wake up. Don't beat yourself up over sins that you've committed this week. Come back to me afresh this morning because the way of the Christian life is repentance. When you wake up spiritually, whether that's through worship corporately or individually, or God's spirit making Jesus real to you afresh, even this morning. When that happens, Jesus becomes more precious to you than anything else. Those fears and failures and remembrances of guilt that uh, Satan wants to bring to your affection and attention. Jesus' love and death and affection for you trumps all of those. So if you're spiritually asleep, what should you do? We need to hear the words of Jesus. You need to heed his challenge. But let me ask you, are you making the most of every resource spiritually at your disposal? Has the Bible got dust on it? Has that one-to-one -one been neglected for you to encourage and rouse another Christian friend with encouragement and spiritual wisdom? Are you making every effort to get to a prayer meeting? Is it a small thing for you to miss it because you don't get much from it? Are you pursuing God with all your efforts and energy, with all the busyness of the world that he knows about? Are you making it first priority every day to seek him? Or is it just a tick list for you? Are you investing the best part of your day, whenever that may be, in pursuing Jesus? That's what it means to spiritually wake up. Is God's love real to you this morning? Do you sense him when you pray? Do you, have you ever lost yourself in the reality of his sufficient love for you? That's what Jesus is doing in this letter to the church at Sardis. He's calling his church back to him afresh this morning with all the activity that has paused 
over lockdown? Have we used that time to invest in the only relationship that will last into eternity? Or have we neglected Jesus? Have we forgotten him? This morning is a great time to hear the challenge of the letter that Jesus wrote to the church at Sardis and through that historic church to every church and every Christian throughout the ages. Do you need to remember the gospel? Jesus, the King of heaven, came on the ultimate rescue mission to die for you and for me. For people he knew would be spiritually asleep at some point, but he died for us anyway. And he measured his love by stretching out his arms on the cross. Our Redeemer, our cosmic King, and our closest friend loves you this morning, no matter what you've done, and longs for you to come back to him in repentance and faith. Because what's the hope? Look at verse four and five. To everyone who Jesus knows personally, to everyone who knows Jesus personally, we will be dressed in his righteousness in the future. We already are, but one day we will know it as a reality. There's nothing his eyes cannot see. You cannot kid him. So why not come to Jesus afresh this morning? I think we all need to hear this afresh. Some of you are sitting, maybe standing at home, and you're thinking, really, I'm quite a strong Christian. But on the inside of you, there's a deadness. You might look as if you're strong in your own resources, but Jesus says afresh, check your spiritual temperatures, check your spiritual fuel gauge. Because what does Jesus say in verse six? You have ears. Listen to what the spirit is saying to the churches. Hear the word of Jesus this morning and turn to him afresh.